Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. He is risen. That's right. Half of you are really excited. The other half of you are like, what is this thing you're doing? (laughs) I don't even know. I grew up with it begrudgingly. We said it, so it's an Easter thing. I don't know. Well, hey, thank you, Alec, for sharing. We love you. Appreciate you. Um, And uh, Alec has lived a lot of life, so if you have any questions, he is your guy to talk to. And uh, as we continue in our wonderful series on Matthew, this is our last week of Matthew. And so if this is your first Sunday, you came to the end, uh, finishing it this week, 74 weeks of Matthew, and uh, I'd like you to turn to Luke, the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, your phones, we got Bibles in the back, you can steal from us, we'd love for you to do that. Uh, I'm going to be reading in the NET version, but we'll be in Luke 15 and then in Matthew, but you can turn to Luke right now. And I want to read this story. I think you're going to notice some similarities with Alex's story. And if you were a part of our Good Friday gathering on Friday, we talked about uh, this story. And so I want to read it again, starting in verse 11. Your your version might say the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the compassionate father, depending on how you you read it and look at it. Um, But we're going to start in verse 11. It says, Then Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. And so he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all that he had and left on a journey to a distant country. There he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. And then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now if we pause there, this is kind of where we left it on Good Friday, and we just talk about this this parable, which is just a story, it's an allegory, it's a symbol. And it points to deeper truths in the world that we live in. And as we're thinking about that question of, of... of the tension of, you know, my life has been messed up, what do I do about it? Which a lot of us have dealt with in small levels or in massive levels. We, we get to this point where we ask ourselves, is where I'm running worth it? Are the things that I'm putting my life into worth it? Do they have the meaning that I want? Am I getting the meaning out of them? And I'll be honest with you, I mean, we're Americans. We have no shortage of things to distract ourselves with, uh, whether it is money or or power, or uh, status in our jobs, or in our marriage, or how many kids we have, or how great our kids are, or the school district we go to, or the house we live in, or the car that we drive, or the clothes that we wear. The list can go on and on and on and on. And many of us know the truth. It's that those things are a moment, a moment of pleasure, and that's about it. Any of you who have an Amazon account know that. <laughs> You buy something, it gets there the next day, you like forget what you even bought, and then you open it, and you're like, oh, this is so great. You have like a dopamine hit for five minutes, and then you're on Amazon again for something else, right? It's an endless web of purchasing things. And we do that with anything. We do that with substances. We do that with relationships. We are people who take creation, and we don't worship the creator. We idolize the creation. 
And this young brother's story, this son, that is what he did. His father has given him this beautiful life, and he would get a share of his inheritance when the father would die. But in this culture, uh, you had to wait, and to ask for your inheritance early is basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I hate you. I don't want to be part of your family. Give me my money. It'd be like if your parents had a college fund, and you're like, give me it. I'm taking it. I'm leaving. I'm going to go to Vegas. Deal with it, right? In that moment, would you be like, okay, I'm going to give my son the $100,000 I saved for him. Like, I'm sure he'll have make good decisions in Vegas. Everybody makes good decisions in Vegas, right? No. And in fact, in this culture, he actually had the right to kill or kick out his son for saying that because he was dishonoring the family. And this is a heavy honor-shame culture. We don't always fathom that as Americans. We're more guilt-righteous. But honor-shame, he's shaming his family. He's shaming what his father the relationship that he has, and the father, weirdly enough, honors this. He honors the wishes of the son, and he, he divides his assets for the older brother, and then a portion for the younger brother, and he gives it to him, and the younger brother leaves. And he has, like, the hangover movie, this just, like, crazy party, and he squanders it all away because before you know it, a famine will hit, right? And in our lives, I don't know about you, if you've ever experienced a famine or hardship or loss or tragedy, and it could be in any way, and some of you haven't hit it yet, and you still think you're bulletproof. And you still think that I can continue to create a life of safety and comfort. I can build my own kingdom. And I have established it so strongly that nothing will probably break it. I have a massive amount of money in my savings. And if a tree falls in my house, I'll be fine. If my car breaks, I'll be okay, right? Or I have the best relationships, and they've never had hardship. I have a marriage with, with fidelity, right? But there's not a single one of us that that today could not, our lives could not be changed with a single text message or call. We are not bulletproof, and our kingdoms are destructible. And we can try to numb ourselves or blind ourselves to the reality of the world. And even if your own little kingdom seems safe right now, I think we know the world is not safe. And unfortunately, if you read the news too much, you can figure that one pretty quick. And so we, we live in this world, we see this, we feel this, and some of us have hit this, this pigsty, rock-bottom pit moment like Dwayne was talking about, right? I feel like I'm stuck in this pit. Some of us are not in the pit yet. Some of us are outside saying, hop, never going to end up there. And I hope that you don't uh, realize how quickly that can happen. But we end up in the pit, and we have this decision that we have to make. We have this question that ruminates in our head that is ruminating in this younger son's head, which is, do I continue following down the path I'm going? Do I continue following down the path of pride? And more simply put, am I God or is God God? You can't have two gods. Am I making the decisions that I believe are good for myself and the world or am I trusting in someone else? And at the end of the day, the question really boils down to, and this is the question we'll answer today, is, is God really who he says he is? Is God really who he says he is? I'm talking historically. I'm talking uh, physically. I'm talking, we read in the scriptures, is this Jesus really who he says he is? And so let's turn to Matthew 28. This is the last chapter of Matthew, and our last week in Matthew today. You can flip there. Just go back to your, the left in your Bible a little bit. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to talk about this question, is God really who he says he is? And over the last two years, what I hope that if you've been a part of this, this is your first week in Easter, I still think you're going to learn something, but if you've been following along the last two years of Matthew, or you've been listening, or you, you can always go home and catch up, it might take a little while, uh, or you have been following along in Holy Week, this whole week leading up to Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection. 
That's the question we ask. Is God really who he says he is? And Matthew, who writes the Gospel of Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was Jewish, who was an outcast, who was alone, who is writing to other Jewish people who are asking the exact same question. Is God really who he says he is? And so when Matthew writes, he has the most references to the Old Testament, which is the two-thirds of the front of your Bible, which had been prophesied, had been foretold over hundreds of different years about the Messiah. Is he the one to come? Matthew says, yes, he is. And he, and he proves it through his gospel. So for many of you, I hope that you've been able to see Matthew put Jesus on this little pedestal and kind of spin him around and let you see all of the layers of Jesus. Because whether we realize it or not, we, we, uh, we believe in a lot of things that just happen to be around us, right? We hear things about Jesus, we subscribe to that. We don't like this thing, so we don't subscribe to that, right? We pick and choose and we create our own little buffet Jesus that looks how we want him to look. And I hope over the last two years, you've had some of those things dismantled. You've added other things that you've learned about what is, what is Jesus truly about? What is his heart about? And is he really who he says he is? And at the end of the day, when we read today the resurrection story, I still think we have to be honest with ourselves. If we didn't know the end or we didn't believe in the end, if you read the story of Matthew 1 through 27, you'll think, what a crazy, ridiculous story. Like, if you are the CEO of the largest company in the world, what kind of person decides to go live among the poor? What kind of person decides to hang out with people who have severe mental illness, who have serious problems, who other people wouldn't even want to be around? What kind of person removes all their wealth what kind of person picks 12 protégés who are all duds? <laughs> Teenage boys. Those are, those are about as low as it gets. <laughs> right? Like, what kind of person does that? What kind of CEO does that? What kind of king abandons his throne for loneliness, suffering, and death? When the more money you make, the bitches. Right? Can I get an amen? I'm a really like poor average human life. And then pick 12 ragtag guys. If I was king, I would have my plan very different. I'd be driving a really nice car. I'd have a pretty easy day. I'd be playing a lot of golf, right? It'd be nice. But this is not what Jesus decides. And everybody around him doesn't agree with what he's doing, even his own disciples. And so as we get into chapter 28, as we start reading, I just want you to think about the two days or so that went by that everyone had to sit in this, this mess, this disillusionment, this pain, and this hurt. We get to know the end. We get to celebrate Easter. Right? Easter's coming, right? They didn't. And what's even worse is, and people don't remember this, is they had two Sabbath days in between. So Jesus is killed on 3 p.m. on Saturday. they got to get him in the tomb before sunset. They get him in the tomb, and then they have to Sabbath. I mean, they got to stop working. They can't be running around doing errands. They can't, like, sit around the tomb. they got to go home, and they have to rest and delight in the Lord, which is ridiculous if you just spent the last three years of your life abandoning everything for a guy who just died. And you got to sit in it for two days, and you can't binge Netflix. You can't... Uh, uh, therapy shop. You can't call up all your friends and like just try to numb yourself or distract yourself. You have to sit in this idea of, this is ridiculous. What did I just give up my life to? Is God really who he says he is? And so in chapter 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath, or Sabbaths, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, and suddenly there was a severe earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards, the Roman guards, were shaken and became like dead men because they were so afraid of him. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has been raised just as he said. Just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. Then go quickly 
and tell his disciples. He's been raised from the dead. He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So they left the tomb quickly in fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. But Jesus met them on the way, saying greetings or hello. They came to him. They held on to his feet, and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me there. This moment is encouraging for us. If you're married and you ever think your wife's wrong, women always are right. <laughs> They're the first ones to the tomb, and what do they do? They just worship their, the Savior. And not only that, they wrap their arms around him, right? He's not a floating ghost, okay? He's present, he's physically there, and they just have no other option but to worship him. And one of the Marys, we would argue, worshiped him a few days before with an anointing. And so to see this come full circle is a beautiful moment. And Jesus commissions them and tells them to go send for the disciples to go to a town and a region where he had done most of his ministry, like healings and teachings and all that, up in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. Leave this city and this area and go meet me in this place. And I'll get to why that matters in a moment. But the last thing that we see of the city of Jerusalem is not a good picture. See, Jerusalem was, was the symbol and it was supposed to be the city on a hill that was a light to the world. Everyone was supposed to see the city of Jerusalem in the way that they loved and treated Yahweh. And that was how humanity was supposed to be. The prototypical version of humanity. And they failed miserably. And the leaders of, of the city is who, are who killed Jesus. Because even the Romans were kind of like, uh, I don't know, like, right? You guys do this. And they did. And this is the last scene we get of the leaders in Jerusalem, in the, in the heart of Jerusalem, while they were going in verse 11, some of the guards went into the city. They told the chief priests everything that had happened, and they had assembled with the elders and formed a plan. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came at night and stole his body while they were asleep. If this matter is heard before the governor, which is Pilate, who had the first or one of the trials, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story is told among the Jews to this day which is true not only in 90 AD, around when Matthew was um, sent out, but also 2022. These leaders, who were the most knowledgeable... 2023, sorry. <laughs> you guys are awake. I'm proud of you. 9 a.m. would have totally let that go. You Jerusalem leaders are, are the, supposed to be the most knowledgeable people about the coming of the Messiah. They had the first two-thirds of the Bible practically memorized. And what was the thing that made them miss it? It's this hard heart. It's the question of, is God really who he says he is? And do I want to let go of the pride in my life? And here's the thing. They can't do it. Because they're not going to, they, they can't, what are they, they, can't, they haven't found Jesus. He's gone. They have to reconcile the fact that Jesus is gone. And they have to come face to face with this reality that maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe we should figure this out and see if this guy really is the Messiah. But instead, what do they do? They hide in their lies and self-preservation, and they use money as a tool to continue living the life they want to live. And so the last picture we see in the book of Matthew about Jerusalem, the city on a hill that is a light is full of corruption and lies. And I think it's kind of fitting that Jesus leaves the city to go do what we call you know, this great proclamation that we're in these seats here today because of. And so as we, we read, he sends the disciples to Galilee. You might think, this is, that's kind of random. Why, why up in this northern area? 
If you remember the beginning in Matthew chapter 5, a long time ago, Jesus starts his ministry with his beautiful teaching. Blessed are the poor who are, who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Right? He starts off with this beautiful illustration of his kingdom and what it looks like. And he sends them to the exact same region and hills, and he reminds them full circle, this is the kingdom now. And, and, and what, I have, what I have communicated and taught is, is real among you now. It is here, and you have a job to do in it. And so what is their response in verse 17? Sometimes we miss this. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They're all faced with the exact same question. Is Jesus really who he says he is? These guys had the closest seat to Jesus. Is he really who he says he is? And I think we forget that like some doubted in this moment. Now, I don't know about you. If you put yourself there, you experience the life that, that you would experience with Jesus, you know, maybe you would doubt or you're like, there's no way he's like physically here. This is a dream. We're all dreaming. This is not real. This is an illusion, whatever, right? But some worshiped. Some were able to just like lean into, yes, Jesus is who he says he is, but some doubt. And I think there's two reasons why they could doubt. The first one is just that physical reality. There's no way that someone who's dead came, comes back to life which even today we know that's not true. That happens actually quite a bit. Now, for 30 hours, different story, right? But is, is, is it possible for this human who, who we've seen and heard dead, who we saw placed in a tomb, we saw guarded by Romans, is this actually him? I doubt if that's possible. The second one, though, that I think is much more attainable for our own understanding is the word doubt and the uses of that is probably more accurately translated hesitated. Doubted, hesitated. And you hesitate because think about the last time that all these disciples saw Jesus. He was being taken by a group, a mob, and they run away. They can't even stay awake while he's praying for his last few hours with his, with his crew, and they run away. And so the embarrassment and the shame of looking eyes to eye with Jesus alive again and just thinking, man, did we screw up a couple days ago. How am I even worthy of the love and acceptance that Jesus can give me. I mean, what a, what, a, what a train wreck I am. What a failure we are. And so for many of us, the biggest reason we can't see Jesus and trust that he's real is our own selves. It's the fact that we don't feel like we're worthy. We don't feel like we, 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 have, we deserve the goodness of God, the goodness of the Father. And so just like the younger brother who's sitting in the pig in the pit, right? Am I, what do I do? I can't, I, they're gone the other I have more money. I thought it would make me happy. Now I just want more. Or you thought that you could just keep going your own way in your marriage, and now your marriage is not doing well. Or ridiculous hardship. That doesn't seem fair. In Luke, I talked about this verse on Good Friday. He came to his senses. He asks himself, do I continue down the path of my own pride? Is the Father really who he says he is? And he comes to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired workers have enough food to spare? But here I am dying from hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me like one of your hired workers. The phrase came to his senses is, is accurately translated repent. It's a simple idea of repentance, if you've heard the word repent. Or what repent means is you're going one direction and you have a full 180 degree turn from it. That's all it is. It's not 90. It's not 178. It's 180 degrees. It's turning completely from the direction in the heart of which you had established your life. And some of you, you're able to repent at any point. Even if you're making lots of money and life's going well, you don't have to be in a pit to realize your life is pursuing the wrong things. It's a lot easier when you're in a pit and you're full of mud and you're looking at pigs eating 
wheat and you want some. But for all of us, we have this opportunity to say the life that I am living is actually not the meaningful life that God has created for me. And so in this moment, this younger brother is sitting in the muck, in the mire, and in the pit, and God pulls him out of the pit. And all he does is he comes to a sentence, he repents. And so as we ask, do, you know, the, the cross, the Good Friday, the, the sacrifice that Jesus made, do we place our trust and our faith in that? Is God really who he says he is? Easter is the answer, yes. In the last words of Jesus in the book of John, he uses this word tetelestai. It's Greek. And tetelestai was something that was written on a loan document when you owed an insane sum of money and you finally were able to pay it off for whatever reason. They would stamp tetelestai on it and it meant that it was paid in full. And on Friday, with Good Friday, we had people come and just and turn from their senses. They, 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 they came to their senses and they turned from the life and they said, here are the things that I'm going to lay down. Here are the sins. Here are the idols. Here are the things that are getting in my way. And I'm going to give them over to the Lord. And what's even crazier is there's thousands and millions of sins that we didn't even have time to write that you maybe don't even remember, that you are hiding from people and from God. And we, we, what we did is we just, Lord, just we trust that this death is worth this, that, that our sins will actually be forgiven. And what does Jesus do? His answer of Easter is, yes, it is forgiven. And, he, and, and we stamped all these sins with the telestai. like, it, it, you are free. Your debt is removed. There's a story of two men who are in massive amounts of debt, and one owes like a gazillion dollars, and, and there's just no way he's going to pay it off. And the, the owner of the, of the debt um, comes to the master and he's like, I can't pay this. Please, for, you know, just, just remove it. And, the, and he removes it. And I think about that in our lives. No matter how big our debt is, it truly is gone. And it, and it should cause this, this reaction in our hearts. And when we think about Good Friday, we think about the weight at which we have placed on the cross that Jesus took for us. Jesus did not just say thank you and check it off. He took it with pain and suffering and loneliness and isolation and I don't know about you, but if I was king, that would not be the way that I would do it. But that is the way of the cross, and that is the way of Jesus. And so the son comes to his senses. He gets up, and he goes to his father, thinking, surely I will be able to, at very minimum, I'm not going to be a son, I'll be a hired worker, which was a very risky job. It was the lowest of the low. You get paid each day, and sometimes you wouldn't get work. And you didn't live there. You just were, were on your own. But surely he'll give me just a little bit of the crumbs of his, of his work he got up and he goes to his father, but while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. Heart is the first thing that makes it there. And he ran and he hugged his son and he kissed him. If you notice, the father was not sitting on the porch, you know, tapping his foot, like, what a failure you are. Welcome back. He didn't come out with a whip being like, get out of here, I hate you. He didn't make fun of the son with all of his buddies around him being like, hey, that's the son who ditched you. What a joke. He runs out after him. And in, in, the, in the verbiage, it implies that he was waiting. He was not standing on his porch, but at the end of each day, going to his property, just waiting for the sun to come back at any moment. And we see in, in him running, which we don't think a lot about that. We think, oh, that's dramatic. But in, in this culture, it's insanely dramatic. Because in this culture, the more wise you were, the older you were, the more prominent you were, the, the slower you walked. People could tell how wealthy you were by the way you walked. Nowadays, if you're important, you walk super fast because you've got places to go. People waste your time, right? It was the complete opposite. If you were rich, you would literally walk super slow, and people behind you would have to follow your pace because you're a big deal, and they follow you. And this, this father tucks in his clothes, which is embarrassing, and he runs to his son. 
And if you're like a worker in the fields, you're like, what is he doing? That kid's a dud. Like, he just cursed, right? The father absorbs all of the shame and embarrassment, the hope that if I go back home, will my father actually love me, actually approve of me? The father absorbs all of that shame and embarrassment on himself because he's the goofball running down the road with his pants tucked in, and everyone's seen him, and he doesn't care. Because he doesn't care what he looks like. Jesus doesn't care that he's naked on a cross for everyone to see that he's dying while the Jewish people are in their homes celebrating a meal that would become meaningless after his death. He doesn't care because he cares deeply for you. He doesn't let social awkwardness, he doesn't let anxiety, he doesn't let pain, he doesn't let fear, he doesn't let any of those things stop him from his purpose. And what does the father do? The son says his speech Verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. And he cuts him off right there. And he says, but the father said to his slaves, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on and put a finger on, or a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. If you notice, the son doesn't even get to finish his speech. He was going to say, treat me like one of your hired workers. He cuts him off immediately. You are my son. And for many of us, it seems illogical. How could someone who's done such hurt to someone forgive someone so easy? It seems cheap. But we know it wasn't cheap. And we know it was painful, and we know that it hurts the Father. And that's how mercy works. And so what do they do? They bring the fattened calf, and they kill it. They throw this massive party. The entire community has to go, and they have to navigate through the weirdness of the fact that this son ran away, squandered his father's money, and now he's back, and we have to party with his father. But in the rejoicing of the father, everyone starts to realize, oh my gosh, I get it now. And he says, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. Are you lost? Do you feel alone? Are you stuck? It's one moment of repentance. Some people say the moment at which the father loved him is the moment at which the, the son stepped back into the sight of the father. I actually think the moment the father loved him and accepted him was the moment he turned away. Like Alex said, you think you're far away from God. All you are is one turn away, and he's right there. And, and maybe you've experienced that, and you're just struggling again, and you're like, man, I just I feel like I'm playing whack-a-mole with my life. I feel like I get these problems down, and then these other ones pop up, or, or I'm feeling pretty good. But at the end of the day, we all have this moment where we have to decide, do I want to keep living in my own way, my own pride, or, or, and do I really trust that God is who he says he is, and Easter is about that. Good Friday is the death that Jesus had to die. Without Good Friday, there's no Easter. And Easter is the yes, and that God is who he says he is. So as we close out the book of Matthew, if you go to the last verse. Matthew's clever. In the first chapter of Matthew, one of the first weeks we started this, he calls Jesus Emmanuel. He doesn't use it at time, but he uses it at the beginning. Emmanuel means God with us. It's this idea that God is not sitting up in the clouds letting things happen, but that he says, I'm going to become like humans to experience the human life so that if you've suffered, I've suffered, and I know what it's like, he can get as close as he possibly can to us. And God with you. He's here waiting. That's why Easter is awesome. Some of you have him starting to get it. News That Jesus came down as God and man. He became flesh. He walked among us. He experienced in a new human way of living, one that was the fullest part. The sin of our world came was the ultimate sacrifice for our depravity, that our debt is paid to telestai, that we have life in his name, that though we do not see him now, we believe in him because we see the power in our lives, whether it's 
a moment of decision like Alec to say, I'm just going to put my life into this and who knows what happens. Or it's these small things that God has been doing to get you in this seat today. Or it's these small things in your family that has been bothering you and texting you and praying for you. Or your name is on that wall in our prayer room and we've been praying endlessly for you is that you would rejoice in the indescribable and glorious joy. And that when we say he is risen, we don't end with that, but we also get to say we are free. We are free. So as we close out today, we always offer a time of reflection and contrast as, like a, as a way for you to just tangibly inculcate this into your heart and your mind. And so we have three things that we can do. The first one is right here, in, right here and in the back. We have two stations here. This is the bread and cup. And this is just a reminder of what Jesus did. His last night on earth, he ate dinner with his disciples. And there was no lamb to be eaten because he was going to be the lamb. And so he takes the bread and he takes the juice and he says, this is my body and this is my blood. This is the new covenant. And so when we partake in that, we, we are symbolically eating and reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you can partake in that. If you're like, I want to do this right now, first time, it's there for you. There's one in the back and one in the front, and they're both gluten-free. Second thing I want you to do, there's a QR code on the screen. There's also QR codes in the backs of the seats right there. And we just want you, we want to hear from you. I'm going to be honest with you, it's been a long, great journey, and sometimes you have no idea as a teacher if anything is actually sticking. So if you've been a part of our Matthew journey for any amount of time, you were part of our Holy Week app and This Week and Experience, or you're just here today for the first time and the only time, maybe you're out of town with family, Fill that out and just, just it's going to ask you like one question. What's something encouraging you're learning about God? It's going to ask you if you want to follow Jesus or if you want to recommit your life to him. And we're not going to publish it. We're not going to post it publicly. We just want to know what is God's doing in your life. And so we're going to give you time. You can scan that code on the back. If you don't have a phone or you can't do it right now, our host in the back at the end will help you with that. And the last thing we want you to do is just pray pray for each other. We have people in the back who want to pray for you, who want to celebrate with you if you're experiencing freedom. I didn't say this in the first service, but if, if you'd like, you're welcome to grab your card off there if you want to take that home, or if you want to go read them, or if you want to bring one forward. We just encourage you to process through the sin that Jesus has freed you from, and that's what we celebrate today. So we're going to give you some time to do that, and then we're going to close in a couple more songs. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.